This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello there, and thanks for joining me again. I'm Robbie Bergen, and you are listening to The Faith Experiment. This is Episode 6 of The Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode Divine Communication. This is a show about exploring faith and making faith practical so we can experiment with it. I've mentioned already that I'm starting the show off by taking you through how I started my own personal faith experiment. This show is not just about theory. It's not just about talking about dusty old books and manuscripts. This show is about real life and how faith impacts it. And so over the past five episodes, I've been talking you through how I went from being a non-believer to a faith experimenter. Now, as usual, I'd like to hear from you today. Where are you listening to The Faith Experiment from right now? Let me know by texting me on 0488 or you can email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au or leave a message on the Faith FM Facebook page. Now, in today's show, I've got a great book I want to give away. It's called 13 Life-Changing Secrets. This is a powerful little book filled with stories that are really going to move you. So stick around to get the code word during today's show. You'll need to text the code word to 0488 So make sure you save the number in your phone, 0488 and wait for the code word. Well, in the last episode, I shared with you how, as the war on terror started in Afghanistan in the wake of 911, this new war, which we were all told would be like no other, it had all the hallmarks of a religious war. It was seen by many as a war between the God and religion of Islam and the God of American Christianity. And as I shared already, being born and raised here in Australia, which historically comes from a Judo-Christian heritage, I didn't want to be so naive to think that these Hebrew and Greek manuscripts were automatically accepted as the correct and right view and the only source of truth in town, without first at least exploring other worldviews. And so I began my quest to compare and contrast these other worldviews. I explored all the major worldviews and found that despite their differences, they shared a number of similarities, which were things like they all seemed to see that there was a fundamental concept of morality or that there was a difference between wrong and right actions. They all see that today humanity lives in a morally imperfect state or an imperfect world and that we humans must have these imperfections changed or removed if there is to be any hope for our species. And that human character, which drives actions, is the central issue in judgment, whether it's before a judge or a deity. Now, in this quest, I came across a 1987 mitochondrial DNA research project carried out by the University of California in Berkeley, where they found that all DNA mitochondrial mutations can be geographically traced from today's people groups to a common starting point somewhere in the Middle East. Now, with this information, I found that most of the worldviews supported this idea of a common starting point, which most of the worldviews attributed to a creative act of some kind of creator God. And this led me further to discover some summaries of attributes and characteristics of who and what this God is like, which I wrote out inside of that circle 
on a sheet of paper. And finally, I left you with that scene where, after completing this exercise of transcribing everything I could find out about God into that circle, I was left staring at everything I was looking for in my life. I was staring at what was missing in my life. And then I realized, for the first time in my life, that I had been looking for God. Now, if you missed any of the previous episodes and you want to catch up with some of the details, go ahead and get the Faith FM app from your app store or go to faithfm.com.au and look under the podcast section for The Faith Experiment. Under tight security, New York City welcomes the new year with happiness and hope. The president says 2002 will be a great year, but he says there is one thing that make it even greater. As the year 2000 came to an end, and the year 2002 began, we were beginning a new year which didn't seem to promise any relief from the insanity and turmoil of the past three months of 2001. The world was at war with terror, and none of us knew how long this war would last. But the nightly news was full of footage of advanced aerial strikes on barren desert cliffs and caves. There was footage of Afghans being arrested and detained in makeshift prison camps. You see, the war was waging in Afghanistan, which had started in October, when the Taliban failed to deliver on the demands placed upon them by the United States of America. Here in Australia, we too were sending our forces to fight in the so-called Coalition of the Willing. There was a sense of uncertainty on how the world would ever get back to normal. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. This is CNN Headline News. I'm Renee San Miguel. Happy New Year from the Big Apple. Millions of people jammed Times Square Monday for the annual ball drop. Thousands of police officers were in the streets with them as a security precaution. President Bush's New Year's resolution is becoming a refrain. Mr. Bush admits he doesn't know right now where the world's most wanted man can be found. But he reiterated that it is only a matter of time before Osama bin Laden's luck runs out. We're going to get him. And it's just a matter of when. All I know is that he's running. And anytime you get a person running, it means you're going to get him pretty soon. Same with Mullah Omar. It's just a matter of time. As the New Year came and went, there was massive unrest and fear in India and Pakistan. These nuclear powers remained on a war footing. The relationship between the two had deteriorated sharply since the attack on the Indian parliament by Kashmir separatists. While the UK had pledged to visit the region and promote peaceful dialogue, everything was on a knife edge. Indian soldiers remain on a heightened state of alert tonight. They're clashing with their neighbour, Pakistan, after a series of military conflicts this week. And if that wasn't enough... On January 5th, 2002, a 15-year-old boy flew a light aircraft into the 28th floor of the Bank of America building in Florida. He left a suicide note claiming he was acting on behalf of al-Qaeda. He said in the note that Osama bin Laden was absolutely justified in the terror that he caused on 911, and he has brought a mighty nation to its knees. Was this the start of more unexpected terror attacks anywhere at any time? It was a scary sight for those who witnessed it. Scott Murphy says the low-flying plane caught his eye. I was looking on the other side to see if it was going to pass by the building, and I looked back and saw it hit it. It heard pop, no explosions, no nothing. Officials say the plane, with a 15-year-old at the controls, 
crashed into the 28th floor of the Bank of America building. Both wings broke off and fell to the ground below. Luckily, no one was injured on the ground, but there were people inside the building on the upper floors. The word started and then, in January 2002, in the State of the Union address, President Bush describes regimes that sponsor terror are an axis of evil, which he includes Iraq, Iran and North Korea. And so the talk began of not just a war in Afghanistan, but a pending war in Iraq. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and the distinct honor in presenting to you the President of the United States. Thank you very much. Fellow citizens, as we gather tonight, our nation is at war, our economy is in recession, and the civilized world faces unprecedented dangers. Yet the state of our union has never been stronger. Our second goal is to prevent regimes that sponsor terror from threatening America or our friends and allies with weapons of mass destruction. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. By seeking weapons of mass destruction, these regimes... January 2002 also saw the bankrupt airline Ansett Australia formally cease all of its operations and Australia witnessed the airline's final flight and the end of an Australian icon. And so it's goodbye to Ansett, its final flight complete. Its massive state-of-the-art terminal, built for the Olympics at close to $300 million, is now a virtual warehouse. Where once hundreds were employed here, it's now patrolled by just a dozen security personnel. It's uh, really too early to tell how this big facility could be used in the future. And to add to this, January 2002 also saw the worst drought in a hundred years affect most of Australia, with water restrictions being put in place in Sydney, Melbourne and many other regions, and farmers were devastated by crop failures. Additional water restrictions now apply throughout Sydney, Blue Mountains and the Illawarra. No hosing of lawns and gardens except handheld hosing before 10 a.m. And in the same month, January 2002, our then Prime Minister John Howard went to tour Ground Zero in New York City. And while he was there, more than 70 asylum seekers, mostly from Afghanistan, at the Woomera Detention Centre, sewed their lips together and hundreds took part in a hunger strike demanding the Australian government grant them residency. There can be few more gruesome forms of protest than sewing one's lips together with needle and thread. But for detainees at the Woomera Detention Centre, the very loss of speech itself speaks volumes about their plight. You see, after 911 and the war on terror, Australia stopped processing Afghan asylum seekers due to concerns that they were part of the Taliban, who were the primary object of this new war on terror. It didn't matter wherever you turned, wherever you looked, what you watched, what you read. If your eyes were open, you saw not just a city, not just a country, but an entire planet that was in turmoil. It seemed like things were exponentially getting worse. War, destruction, terror, drought, asylum seekers, corporate bankruptcy, political and economic uncertainty. It was everywhere. Well, we have to take a short break now, but when we come back, we'll continue with my faith experiment in the wake of 911.
And don't forget to stick around for today's code word for this great book, 13 Life-Changing Secrets. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 04888-45311. That's 04888-45311. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au. Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Listen live or listen later. Get the Faith FM app from your app store today. Welcome back to the Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Robbie Bergen, and this is episode six of the Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode Divine Communication. Now, remember, I have this great book, 13 Life-Changing Secrets, to give away today, so stick around to get the code word during the show. You'll need to text the code word to 04888-45311. So save the number in your phone, 04888-45311, and wait for the code word. Now, as I've been sharing with you, as the new year started in 2002, 
it didn't look like we were going to get much better than 2001. No matter where you turned or where you looked, what you watched or what you read, the world was in turmoil. There was war, there was destruction, there was terror, there was drought, there was asylum seekers, there was corporate bankruptcy, political and economic uncertainty, and at times it all felt just a little bit overwhelming. Now, as I've already shared, my life looked very different by the time 2002 rolled around compared to how it was just six months earlier. All my future plans were now in doubt. My engagement was off, all of my social circle was gone, and the rumors at work about the future of our IT department were becoming more and more common. My future financials looked very, very weak, and my share portfolio had lost tens of thousands of dollars. It was just all gone. And it didn't look like anything was going to improve anytime soon. And then there was my quest, this unintended project that was leading me on a journey which with each clue, with each new piece of evidence, I was finding myself being drawn away further and further from what my foundation, my guide in life had been. Everything I held to as being core to life was now fading dimly into the background of my daily life. Now, I was still working the same job in the same city in the same building at the same desk, but something was changing. And as I was reading and researching and discovering this entirely different side to life, it was like some new and strange dimension was being slowly opened up to me. I kept going back to that field experience where I stood there looking up at that electrical storm and the lightning crossing the great dome of the sky from the western horizon right across to the east. I kept seeing those scenes playing and replaying in my mind of me committing all kinds of transgressions, things which in the average person's view were not that bad, but there, standing in front of whatever it was that was out there, I sensed my own guilt, my own condemnation. And now, in light of everything I've come across, everything I have found, my head was spinning. Oh, I needed to be grounded somehow. What was happening to me? Why am I even at this point in my life? I mean, could it really be that I am, that that I have been seeking for and after God? Are his fingerprints in each one of these events that have led me to this moment? Was he allowing some kind of pulling back of a metaphysical or or spiritual curtain that night that I saw that dark, shadowy figure in that nightclub? Was he the one that made me sense myself as if I was being toyed with or played with like a puppet in the hands of a puppet master? Was, Was that this God? Was there a God then who was trying to communicate with me in my mind or... In the middle of that field, was he the one that was playing that movie back in my mind's eye? Show me those scenes of scenes of actions and moral transgressions. Was this the god that the ancient Chinese called Shangdi when they wrote, You may deceive men, but you cannot deceive God? God knows the good and evil stored in the heart. Was there really a supernatural being out there somewhere who knew every detail of my existence? And then my mind kept going back to that point where 
All of this began because of September 11, 2001, and prophecy. Was it all coincidence that 911 happened just weeks after these unexplainable metaphysical or supernatural events? And then there was that statement highlighting the connection between New York and the prophecies of that old Hebrew prophet, Daniel. And then I started to think, was this all worth it? I mean, this thing, whatever this thing is, is it's cost me dearly. It's cost me my engagement, my best friend. It's cost me my social circle. My life has turned upside down. But what could I do? Where, where could I go? It was clear that the world had changed. And it was also clear that so had mine. With everything that I had seen and heard and read and explored, something had changed. You know, there's that famous statement made by the former Supreme Court Justice, Ralph Emerson, who once said that the mind, once stretched by a new idea, never returns to its original dimensions. And this was exactly how I felt. I had explored things, I had read things, I had seen things, I had stretched my mind, and there was no way back now. I'd seen things in this quest this this journey, and I had to continue. I had to see this through to wherever or whatever this was and where it was leading me to. Was this God, the God in my circle? Was he communicating with me? Was this all his doing? Was there something I was meant to be understanding? Something I was meant to be doing? How do I even know if this is some kind of divine communication? Well, it's that time again that we need to take a short break, but when we come back, we will continue with my quest to find divine communication. And coming up is today's code word for this great book, 13 Life-Changing Secrets. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. The Faith Experiment is made possible because of people like you. If you enjoy what we are doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website at faithfm.com.au slash donate. You take what is and you make it
to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is Episode 6 of The Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode Divine Communication. And before the break, I was sharing with you how, as the year 2000 began, the world did not look like it was going to be getting any better anytime soon, but rather, it seemed like things were actually getting worse. However, as my quest to search out these worldviews continued and I looked for what each of them offered, I had inadvertently stumbled across those statements describing who God is and what he's like. And so, I now had a circle representing everything I could find on what God was like and on who he was. Now, coming up is today's code word for this great book, 13 Life-Changing Secrets. This powerful little book is filled with stories that are really going to move you. Stories about people shocked by the blow of divorce, by drug addiction, abuse, abandonment, death, and financial problems. People longing for something better. So stick around for today's code word coming up very shortly. Now, I shared before the break how that I had my circle on my sheet of paper, and inside I had all those characteristics of who and what God is like. And as I've shared, that circle contained a list of everything that I was looking for in life, a list of things that were missing in my life. And as I've said, it hit me staring into this circle, which represented my discoveries about God. I didn't know it up until then, but I had been searching for this God. But the question now was, is this God just an ideal? Is this just a list of nice characteristics and attributes? Or is this really, truly a living, breathing being that has been described in the pages of all these religious texts? Does God really exist in reality? 
I mean, beyond texts and manuscripts and artifacts. And if he does exist, does he actually communicate with human beings? The Chinese emperor claimed that God heard and answered prayer. The Hebrews, the Muslims, and the Christians, they all claim that their God is one that hears our prayers and betrays himself as our Father, one who loves us and continues to love us, one who desires to have some kind of connection or relationship with us. Most of these worldviews claim that God wants to have communication with us. He wants to have divine communication with us. But what does divine communication even look like? Is this communication limited to these so-called holy texts? And what's the purpose of these ancient texts anyway? As I went back to the worldviews that I've been exploring so far, I thought I would now look at each one of these belief systems and examine the text that they use as the foundation of their beliefs and see what the nature and purpose of these texts were and how they were perceived by their respective teachers. I first looked at the holy texts of the Hindus. I found that there were four texts that make up what is known as the Vedas. And these Vedas are the primary text of Hinduism. They've also had a vast influence on Buddhism. Now, scholars have determined that the oldest parts of the Vedas were composed about 1500 BC and are codified around 600 BC. The Vedas contains hymns and incantations and rituals from ancient India. Now, what I was interested in was to see how these texts came into existence, and I found that Hindus believe and teach that these texts were received by scholars directly from God, and then they were passed on from one generation to the next by word of mouth. And this happened for generation after generation until these texts were codified. I also found these writings, although they have great cultural value and significance, I found that these texts actually don't offer much in the way of evidence to attest to the claim that they come from God, other than legend and tradition. Now, for some of you, this may not be much of a big deal, but this really bothered me. It bothered me that here were some religious texts that tradition claims came right from the mouth of God, but there was absolutely no explanation on how to support this claim. Now, I've shared with you on a few occasions now that I'm wired for skepticism. I question everything. It's my belief that if something has merit, if something has value, then there should be no hesitation to subject it to intense investigation. After all, if something can't hold its own, if it can't stand up to a few questions, then it's better to find its weaknesses before accepting it as a belief or some kind of conviction and then finding out that it has holes in it later on. And so even though Hinduism had some insights into concepts of belief supporting a single point of origin of humanity in terms of a creation story, it supported the basic concept of the existence of morality and judgment, the fact that within the pages of his teaching there was no way to substantiate these claims that these texts came from the mouth of God, it really troubled me. I was not going to establish my belief system upon a claim that came from some oral tradition that these texts had come at some point in the past from the mouth of God. As old as these texts are, as intriguing as the stories seem to be, if I can't find a way to test these claims, then how can I accept these claims? 
And so I turned my attention to the teachings of Buddha. Now, as I've shared in previous episodes, Buddhism grew as a response to answer some of the questions which Hinduism itself had failed to provide. I also shared how that Buddha offered two great teachings, the first being the Four Noble Truths and the second being the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment. Now, both of these hold tremendous moral and civil values, but in Buddhism there is no absolute religious text like there is in Hinduism. And so, in Buddhism, each person is ultimately seen as the absolute authority on any Buddhist teaching and the way it is to be put into practice. And so, although the teachings of Buddha have great ethical and moral significance, there is no claim that his teachings are some kind of direct revelation from some kind of God. So next, I investigated the Quran, which is the primary text of Islam. Now, it's claimed that the Quran was revealed to Muhammad, who is held to be a prophet. The texts are believed to have been canonized around 650 AD. Now, Muslims believe that the Quran was orally revealed by God to this final prophet, Muhammad, through the archangel Gabriel. Now, this was not all given at once, but incrementally it was revealed over a period of about 23 years. The Quran is thought to be, by Muslims, not just simply the inspired word of God, but literally the word of God dictated word for word to Muhammad. The Quran describes itself as a book of guidance for mankind. And in Surah chapter 9, verse 33, the Quran describes its own reason for existence. It says, It is he, Allah, or God, who has sent his messenger, referring to Muhammad, with guidance and the religion of truth, so it may outshine every other religion, regardless of their hatred of the idolaters. Now, the Quran says in Surah chapter 4, verse 82, then do they not reflect upon the Quran? If it had been from any other than Allah, they would have found within it much contradiction. Now, this verse many point to as proof that the book came from God, because the claim is, is that when you read the book, there is no contradiction within itself. Now, with as much respect as possible, I found this so-called evidence not to be very reassuring or even convincing. Why, you may ask? Because the book was written by one person. Subscribers to Islam are the first to tell us that the Quran was written by Muhammad. And the claim is, is that he was illiterate. And the fact that he produced a work of literature like the Quran is said to be another divine miracle in and of itself. But for me, the skeptic, if one man writes one book, I would be really surprised if there were contradictions. I mean, you'd have to have a few marbles loose if you could write one book by yourself and still contradict yourself in your own book. So, again, although the Quran contains many moral concepts and intriguing principles, I found that once again, like the Hindu text, there is a claim that these texts are from the gods, but there's no real evidence provided that would allow someone like me to test the claim for myself. I too would just have to accept that somehow oral tradition says that this book along with the Vedas are from God and therefore believe it and accept it. 
Now, as I've said before, a fact is not a fact until it's demonstrable, measurable, and repeatable. And so, for me, although I found these writings to be eye-opening, I couldn't, with absolute certainty, accept that these words were from a god or from the gods, when there was no way to demonstrate it. Well, it's time now to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll continue with my quest to understand what is divine communication and how to be sure if it's even possible that these texts come from God. And don't forget, coming up is today's code word. We'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Faith Experiment, please help us get the word out by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is Episode 6 of The Faith Experiment, which I'm calling Divine Communication. Now, before the break, I was sharing with you how my personal experiment with faith began in the shadows of 911, with that prediction that made the claim that the events in New York City were somehow connected to the ancient prophecies of Daniel chapter 11. 
and how this experiment has taken me on a journey exploring ancient Hebrew texts and ancient Greek texts, the writings of the Vedas, the teachings of Buddha, the Islamic texts of the Quran and the ancient Chinese classical texts and various other religious documents and worldviews. And also shared how that all of this led me to a point where I now possess this circle containing various characteristics and attributes of who and what God is meant to be like. But was God real? Was he a living, breathing being? And did he really communicate with humans? And does he still want to communicate with humans? And so this next chapter of my quest was to examine the texts of each of these worldviews and their religious beliefs about them and to see what evidence they gave to support their conviction that these were in fact words from a divine supernatural being. And before the break, I shared with you how I was exploring the Vedas and found that tradition teaches that these words came from the mouth of God to the ancient priests. But other than this tradition, there is no way to verify that claim. I next looked at Buddha and found that Buddha never claimed that he had received any real revelation from God, nor did he even write anything that he considered to be a holy text. And so although these teachings contain good ethical and practical information, there is really nothing there to point to or to test as to the claims of a supernatural origin. And then next, I turn my attention to the Quran, that holy book of the Islamic faith. And once again, like the text from the Hindu faith, the claim of the Islamic faith is that the words of this book came from God to Muhammad. And the evidence that these words came from God and are not just words of men is one, that the Quran says that there is no contradiction inside the book, therefore that's proof it came from God. And two, the fact that Muhammad was illiterate and he wrote this book is a miracle in and of itself, testifying to the fact that it was in fact the word of God. But as I said, with as much respect as possible, neither of these evidences satisfied my skepticism. After all, the book that is written by one man shouldn't contain contradictions. And as to the claim that Muhammad was illiterate, well, that's not testable and it's not provable. And therefore, for me, I struggle to see how this would be enough evidence for me to accept that these words were the very words of a divine supernatural being. Next, I turn to the ancient classical texts of the Chinese. Now, these texts contain profound insights into the Chinese understanding of Shangdi or God. It gives vivid descriptions and attributes and characteristics of God. The pictographic characters that make up the written language have embedded within them so many stories of the creation accounts that correlates with the Hebrew Old Testament. But as hard as you try, you can't find any claim that these writings come from God. You see, the way Shangdi or God is talked about, it's as if there was no need to prove his existence. The emperor of China would just state that God was infinite, that God was eternal, that God was the creator, that God was the judge. The emperor made no claims in his speeches that he got his words directly from God. It was just implied that this is what Shangdi is like. 
And so, once again, I was left with just information that described God and his interactions with mankind. Nothing that I could test to verify the claims. And so, I turned my attention back to where it all began. Back to the Hebrew text. Back to the book of Daniel. And going through that book again, reading it and rereading it, there was that verse once again staring me in the face. I went back to that story, that amazing story of King Nebuchadnezzar and his dream that he forgot. And how Daniel turns to his God, Elohim, and asks him for wisdom. And then Daniel comes back to King Nebuchadnezzar and states right there in Daniel chapter 2, verse 27. He says, The The secret secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers shew unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets, and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king... That last sentence, God in heaven who reveals secrets and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days... As you read this verse, there are three sections that jump off the page. First, God is the subject matter in this sentence. Second, God is the one who reveals secrets. And the third part, these secrets that will be revealed, it says, is what will be in the latter days or in the future. In this one sentence, three key points are established. This God of Daniel, the God of the Hebrew people, Elohim, He's going to reveal something that will take place in the future. Now, if he's going to reveal something now in the present for King Nebuchadnezzar that is going to take place in the future, then it makes sense that if the thing in the future takes place, then that substantiates the claim that the one who gave the information is in fact God. Now, with this new insight, I began to search if this concept existed outside of the book of Daniel. Was it anywhere else in the other ancient Hebrew text? And what I found was exactly as I suspected. This concept was everywhere in the Hebrew text. This concept that you can substantiate the claim of God's authorship of a text is in proportion with the accuracy of future events coming to pass as revealed. Among all the passages I found, this portion of a book called Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 20 to 22, it says, But the the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. There it was, the question. How shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? Incredibly, the Hebrew text actually gives the question which was plaguing my mind. How should we know the word which the Lord has spoken? And notice the answer that this Hebrew text gives. 
Now remember, this is meant to be God speaking here as recorded by Moses. And according to Moses, God says, This is how you will know whether I have spoken the word or not. He says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. So again, the Hebrew text claims that the way to know whether or not this word is from God is based on whether or not God's words come to pass or not. Whether or not what he states happens or doesn't happen. And then I came across this portion of the ancient text of Isaiah in chapter 46 verse 9. In this section, Isaiah claims to be quoting God himself. And this is what he says. Remember, Remember the, the former, former things, things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will all do all my, my pleasure. pleasure. Here was the concept again. God will prove himself by revealing future events before they happen. And as these events take place, as they've been revealed, this passage is saying that this is how you'll know that these words are from God. But this passage goes one step further. Here, the author of this text, Elohim, or God, he claims that not only will this information he gives regarding future events prove the fact that he is in fact God and not a human, he's not some magician, but he is in fact God. He goes one step further and says that this will prove that he is the only God and there's no other God beside him. What an absolutely astounding claim. The author of these Hebrew texts claim to be the only God. And it's almost like he expects our response to be, well, we'll prove it. And then he answers our response by saying, I'll tell you the future before it happens. And when you see it happen exactly as I told you it would, that's the proof that I am God, the only God. And so I had a circle representing what and who God is. But each of these worldviews and each of these holy texts, they do contain differences to each other. Many people think that all the religions are similar with just a few differences, but it's actually the opposite. These worldviews are very, very different from one another with very few similarities. But if there is a God, if these characteristics and attributes inside my circle here, if he does exist and he is trying to communicate with me, how can I trust these texts? Are they all from him? Are some of them from him? The only viable way to validate the authenticity of these texts and their claim that they come from God came from the Hebrew manuscripts. And so I started on a quest to test these gods based on their claims. Next time on The Faith Experiment, I will continue to take you on my personal faith experiment and how I started to test the gods. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I have this great book, 13 Life-Changing Secrets by international speaker Mark Finley. This is a book filled with stories about people shocked by the blow of divorce, drug addiction, abuse, abandonment, death and financial problems, people longing for something better and finding it. And so if you would like to get a copy of this book, all you need to do is text the code word today, CHANGE, C-H-A-N-G, CHANGE, text the code word to 04 888 
and the Faith FM giveaway bot will reply asking for your details. So text the code word CHANGE to 04-888-45311. Now it's time for this week's inbox. This is where I browse through the inbox to share your comments, feedback and questions. Now I have a text from Jim who says, Hi Robbie, I thoroughly am enjoying the show. Thanks so much Jim, I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Please do your best to help get the word out with your friends and family. I really appreciate that. And here's a text from Tracy who says she is listening in from Brisbane. Great to have you tuning in from our hometown of Brisbane, Tracy. And here is an email from Ross who says, Hi Robbie, thoroughly enjoying your show. You may be getting a little off track though. Your faith journey because of 911. I want to hear about you and your faith journey because of the events of that day. Please concentrate on how the events of terrorism on New York City. You see, I want to hear because I ended up going to Iraq. Well, thanks so much for your honest feedback, Ross. I'm glad you've been enjoying the show, and I am doing my best to tell my story. It's a very complicated story, as you probably picked up on, on how my story had key moments of which 911 was sort of the pinnacle or the climactic moment that laid the foundation and almost created the right environment for this exploration of faith. And it did take me to these other world religions. But I hope you keep tuning in. Because the story keeps developing in the next few episodes, you'll see where faith became an absolute reality to me. And I can see why you're interested to hear about Terrorism 911 because of your experience with Iraq and the war there. I bet you've got quite a few experiences to share yourself. And I have another email here from Sharon from Craigieburn, who is asking the question, When Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins and had done away with the ceremonial laws, what did Jesus represent in each one of these? For example, Passover is the blood of Christ. Well, that's a really good question, Sharon, and I can see that you are definitely an eager Bible student asking that kind of question. Now, even though this is not a question directly related to the show, and I definitely won't have time to do it justice in this little segment of the inbox, let me just say this. You've started down the right path with asking the question regarding the ceremonial law being done away with and each part representing something of Jesus. And you've given a good example about the Passover and the blood on the doorposts representing the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a really good starting point. When you look at each of the parts of the ceremonial law, the feasts in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, you'll find that there are seven feasts. And in the New Testament, starting with the Passover, in sequence, Jesus fulfills each one of these feasts in great detail. So a good starting place is to first look at Leviticus 23 and understand the feast and the specifics of the feasts. Then look at the New Testament and understand what the symbols represent and how they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about them, Peter talks about them, John talks about them. In fact, even Jesus himself mentions them. So that's some good starting points. I will try and reply to you by email with some extra resources to look into, but I hope that gives you a good starting place. Well, thank you again for all your feedback. I really do appreciate it. And remember, you can text me your thoughts, your comments, your questions on 0488-45311 or you can email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, that's all I have for now. I'll catch you next week at the same time right here on Faith FM for the next episode of The Faith Experiment. I'll see you then. You have been listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Connect with us via text message on 04888 45311. That's 04888-45311. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au and let us know what you thought of this episode.